Hello and welcome into the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Cade Webb, and as always, I am joined by Dustin Ragusa. Dustin, how are you doing on this Monday evening? Yeah, just a, a weird week. We get the 45 to 3 beat down from UCF, and we're recording a day early. So I, I guess I'm a little thrown off, Cade, but how are you? I would say thrown off as well. Um, I was trying to think of the words to describe saturday's game and and the only things that came to mind were horrible and awful so uh that's kind of where i sit with it uh i think it's a it's a burn the game tape kind of game move on and and uh see what happens the, the whole day was weird though i told you this off air uh last week that you could probably credit me and my superstitious nature for the five game winning streak that oklahoma state was on it was all thanks to a pullover i'd been wearing and uh, I was at a funeral right up until kickoff this week, and I didn't wear that pullover. And so I think, you know, if you're going to direct your anger at anybody, you can just direct it to me because I didn't do my job on Saturday. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll definitely blame you and also sorry. Sorry for your loss. But the, you're so right about the, like, kind of just weird conditions, everything when we were kind of leading in, you know, Brendan or uh, Jaden Nixon, they were talking to him after the game, or sorry, Brendan Presley, and he said that they they had a meteorologist, you know, that they that they looked to before the game, and it said chance of light showers, and then you get one of the hardest <laughs> rainfalls I've ever seen during a game. You know, I'm watching the game with my wife and some family, and she's like, are they going to stop the game? It doesn't look like they can see. And I'm like, probably not unless there's lightning, but it's, it was tough. You talk, I heard Gus Malzahn and his offensive coordinator, they compared the football in their post-game pressers to a watermelon because it was so heavy. You had John Re John Rice Plumley say it was like holding a bar of soap. You had Alan Bowman talking about how he couldn't get a grip on it at all. So it was, they said it was about a full quarter, half a quarter where literally you could not get a handle on the football. And you saw it not just from Bowman, but from John Rice Plumley. He completed some of them, but it literally looked like he had his hand completely underneath the ball and was just shot putting it down the field. I mean, it was really just insult to injury. And, you know, if you've ever played in a rainstorm like that, uh, the whole thing just complicates. Uh, it's, and I also think, Dustin, that the way the game went, getting down so early, I tweeted this. It felt like just it wasn't Oklahoma State's day. They moved the ball pretty well through the majority of the first quarter, but most of their drives ended in turnovers. And then as soon as Oklahoma State strings together a couple stops, starts to flip the field on Central Florida, the heavens open up and it rains in buckets. And so, you know, to me, Dustin, it's like, I think if they play that game again, it probably goes differently, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying Oklahoma state wins that game because I, I left feeling like they were just woefully 
unprepared for what hit them in, in Orlando, but you have to factor some of those things in. And, you know, ultimately Oklahoma state's not built to, to come from behind that way. Uh, you know, you get down 17 to a team with that much offensive firepower and uh, it can get away from you pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's something we've talked about on the podcast. We have that. They just, and Alan Bowman talked about it after the game. They do well when they play good defense, create turnovers, run the football. That's that's kind of how Oklahoma State operates, and it's how they operated through that five-game winning streak. And, Cade, as you always do, you kind of segued us perfectly into the offense. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned kind of about Oklahoma State's slow start on offense. They went fumble. Then they had an eight-play, 52-yard drive that ended in an interception. Then they went three and out punt, four and out punt, three and out punt to an interception before they finally scored a field goal on their first drive of the second half. So it was just chaos. But I wanted to hit, as we get into the offense, some notes from Gundy's post game and then his presser today. He talked about turnovers, you know, Alan Bowen with the three interceptions, Ollie Gordon with the fumble. And again, we'll get into those interceptions and what kind of made some of those happen along with the rain. And then he talked about UCF making the 50-50 plays. And I wanted to throw that back over to you, Kate, after that 50-50 comment, because it's as I was re-watching the game, which I ended up actually watching it twice, which shame on me. That's just not, not good. Yeah. That's not good to do to yourself. But the 50-50 plays, it looked like UCF, and it's their space game. It was their space week which apparently is a lot of fun listening to some of the UCF players talk about it after the game. Just a great week in general, kind of like a homecoming week, I would think, comparable for Oklahoma State. But it looked like UCF was making those 50-50 plays. They were firing off the ball. Their defensive and offensive line were kind of kicking our defensive and offensive line's butts at the beginning of that game. And as we talked last week, I said I was a little bit worried about the injuries. We didn't see a long injury report list, but now after the game, we're finding out Joe Mahalski didn't practice all week. Cooper is still really banged up. A lot of these offensive linemen are banged up. And so not only did UCF seem to kind of want it more early, Oklahoma State had the mis miscues, and I think the injuries are just really starting to pile up with that early bye week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough for me to, like, I think everybody's some degree of banged up, you know, Oklahoma state coming off that emotional high um, of winning the last bedlam going on the road to UCF space game in which I didn't know this, but they're undefeated in their space game. They're like now eight, no, or something crazy like that. Yeah. I think like, yeah, I think it was six, six, they, and maybe six game, going so in. Now yeah. they're seven and oh, so this is obviously a tough spot for Oklahoma state. And I probably, I mean, this was by far my worst miss on the podcast in terms of predicting the way a game is going to go, probably rivaled closely by the Kansas State game last year. But I think it was a similar story in both of them. If you're that banged up, that was really kind of what happened against Kansas State last year. You're coming off that Texas game. Especially it, when it's the O-line, not to interrupt you, but our offensive line has played so well, and it sounds like all five guys are if that's, hanging on by a thread. And that's... If you watch the game again, which I didn't do it twice, I only did it once. If you watch the game again, that would explain why the offensive line was so poor on Saturday. Because, I mean, you you said it. When I was watching, it looked like an effort thing. Um, 
it and and effort in the sense of not that they don't care, but effort in the sense that they may be gassed. They they may be hitting a bit of a wall, and this is a tough spot for them. So, you know, I, I take all of that and say, okay, it was a weird game, weird spot for them. Um, I think the result kind of speaks for itself in a way. And I think you you kind of we'll talk about it, but we'll talk about it, I think, quicker than we normally do, because there wasn't a lot of good to go over, I, at least even in my rewatch. It, it wasn't like I left that game feeling like, yeah, Oklahoma State played better than, you know, than the score would indicate, because I, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Gundy kind of mentioned what you and I already mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, that the conditions weren't favorable. And then once they got down the rain started to pour and it's really hard to throw it around and come back there. And again, I know John Rice Plumley was completing some of these passes, but if you go back and watch, they were not pretty balls. Yeah, it wasn't. The one, the one on Corey Black, that was just kind of lofted up in the air. It was not thrown with any kind of velocity at all. So it, it's, it, I could see the counterpoint like, well, they were completing passes, but when you go back and look, he only completed Plumley only completed 11 passes. It was just going UCF's way, and they really executed their game plan. They didn't turn the ball over, and they ran the ball. Oklahoma State turned the ball over in bunches, procedure penalties, and they didn't run the ball at all. So, I mean, that is the opposite recipe that has gotten Oklahoma State to the point they were before Saturday was they ran the ball well, they didn't turn it over, and the opposite happened for Oklahoma State. Yeah, and – the one positive to take away from Gundy's presser is he, along with almost every single player that got interviewed after the game, said that the halftime locker room was great. There was no pointing fingers. There was no complaining. And Gundy even compared that to the opposite would happen at times last season. So it sounds like the spirits were still up. Colin Oliver mentioned it, Nick Martin, that they fought until the end. And you can go back and look when we talk about the defense Nick Martin is making made an amazing tackle in the middle of the fourth quarter, which he's a guy who we found out now has been banged up as well, along with Kendall Daniels. Coach Nardo mentioned it. Cade, we actually noted that we thought Kendall Daniels might be banged up on the pod just from his yeah. play on the field. That has now been confirmed. But these guys kept fighting. It was just tough. And, you know, kind of flipping it back to the offense, Casey Dunn after the game said they were throwing the ball okay with the RPOs early but they weren't creating any opportunities for Ollie. And then as the rain starts to fall, UCF is able to kind of get up in the wide receiver space a little bit, adjust their overhang player to kind of take the glance in those hitch routes away. And if you're not able to get anything going in the running game, the RPO is not really going to work because they can just set up to take those throws away. And you saw that happen as the game moved on. Oklahoma State moved away from motion. They started going tempo, more true drop back because – UCF took away the one thing that was working because Oklahoma State didn't really have a counter. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really simple game when you break it down that way, but I know there's other variables that go into it. But, I mean, Bowman was not sharp. Gordon, you know, didn't have much to, to, to run through and didn't make a whole lot for himself. Turn the ball over, you, you penalize yourself, and then you give up the big explosives that Oklahoma State had prevented over the last couple of weeks. It's just not hard to see how how all this happened for them. Yeah. All right. Let's dive a little bit more, Kate, into the scheme. And then we can, I think for this, we'll kind of go position group by position group instead yeah. of maybe player by player. 
just because, especially on the defensive side, I don't know if player by player is needed, <laughs> except for maybe calling out some positives, which yeah. there were, because like you said, the defense fought the whole game. They just had so many explosive plays let up. There actually were several positives. They just kept faltering. Yeah. In and and it, they were huge, like a 92-yard touchdown run. The first thing I wanted to point out for UCF is we there was actually a guy in this game who I didn't know wasn't going to play. Ricky Barber, a guy we called out their defensive tackle. It sounds like UCF didn't know he wasn't going to play either. Gus Malzahn and Addison Williams, their defensive coordinator, talked after the game. Even without Ricky Barber, they said th- they both said this was the best defensive performance of the season. Addison Williams said it's the most energetic he's ever seen his sideline since he's been at UCF, not just this season, since he's been on staff. So these guys were fired up. It's not, you and I aren't just saying this, Kate. It truly, the guys on their sideline were saying it as well. They were ready to go. And no excuse for Oklahoma State. I just wanted to call that out. You know, sticking on UCF for the scheme, their run fits were really, really good. They they did not even flinch with Oklahoma State's motion. And Oklahoma State went to motion very very often early on they went away from it late when they had to go tempo and try to score quickly you're not really going to do a lot of motion and waste the clock but UCF was not flinching with these motions and what they were doing Cade Casey Dunn called it out after the game so they were playing the counter plays really well he didn't go into detail but I went to a little bit on Twitter what they were doing is the so on counter let's say it's that GH counter the backside guard and H-back will pull around the front. So normally, the rest of the line will be down blocking. So blocking away, kind of pushing the defensive line out of the way, kind of forming a wall for those pullers to come around. Normally, the edge player is unblocked on that play when Oklahoma State runs it. That edge player was putting his hand on the down blocking tackle, following him inside, a safety was fitting late, so they looked like they were in too high, and they'd bring a safety down late. The linebacker would scrape over the top, so then there's two pullers coming, and there's a guy squeezing down who's kind of attacking the puller, and then two guys for the H-back to try to block. And I, I saw Robert Allen call it out, or heard Robert Allen call it out on the radio, calling out Braden Casty. He's like, he blocked the wrong guy. Who's he supposed to block? There's two guys coming at him. Right. He. He physically cannot block both of them unless he goes like sideways torpedo body at him, which would be sick, but it's probably not going to happen. So Oklahoma State adjusted, but by the time they were adjust, they adjusted later in the second half and into or later in the second quarter and into the second half, they they couldn't run the ball anymore. They, they were down by so much they had to throw. So that was a great. It's not even like a super savvy technical thing. It's just. They played it like that. They played it aggressively. Oklahoma State's offensive line was banged up, and you just, it was a perfect storm, no pun intended, with the weather that led to them literally gaining, I think I had it at two, yeah, 2.0 yards per carry on their counter runs in the first half, which those are the runs that are normally springing Ollie for the huge games. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a great breakdown of that, Dustin, because it's easy when you're watching this, just thinking, you know, Oklahoma State can't run the ball, but most people don't look at it deeper than that. I mean, Central Florida 
clearly was ready for what Oklahoma State was going to throw at them. I'm sure they had all the bulletin board material in the locker room as well. You know, Pat McAfee saying Ollie's running for 250 again, and all those things factor into this to me. It's like, you know, Central Florida was just ready, and Oklahoma State didn't have the opportunity to even adjust. It's not as though they wouldn't. They could not with with how much they were down so quickly so it was it really was to to borrow your phrase the perfect storm for Oklahoma State yeah and something else I like that UCF was doing Kate I think we talked about this a little bit but off air the four-man front that they kind of line up in they they went out the first play and had their star uh Jariah Wilson and their buck down on the line of scrimmage uh Tremont Morris Bash so they are five on the line of scrimmage on the very first play. When Oklahoma State would go to counter, I almost took a screen. I tried to stop myself from doing the Twitter thread this week because because of travel and everything, I was like, I've got to focus on things that actually matter and not <laughs> Oklahoma State film, which which matters as well. But five up in the box. When they went to diamond formation, Oklahoma State, they had eight in the box. And not just eight in the box, they had eight players within five yards of the line of scrimmage. Yeah. That's... So that that's what I'm saying. It, it's almost like, what was the point? What's the point on some of these middle of the field runs to go into diamond formation? I know diamond formation has worked. I love diamond formation. But when you're putting Schultz and Cassidy out there who are not threats in the passing game, you're already having trouble running the ball. I get the idea go with the heavier set, kind of push them. But if they're going to put eight guys within five yards of the line of scrimmage, you're not going to be able to run it. I mean, you have to have just supremely amazing blocking and Ollie's got to be able to make at least one guy miss or you're going to get stopped for no gain, maybe even a negative game. I think in that event, Dustin, it highlights what you had at quarterback and receiver in this game, like three turnovers from Alan Bowman, you know, several drops, from the Oklahoma state receivers, some of them leading directly to those interceptions, two of them at least. And, you know, it would have been a nice game to be able to throw the ball around a little bit more than Oklahoma state was able to do. I mean, they, they just in, in an event like that, what we saw against Oklahoma was that they were ready to stack the box and Oklahoma state could throw out of it. That was the way they won that game. Pretty, pretty much point blank offensively. And in this game, they weren't able to throw out of it. You could factor in the, the conditions, the receivers were, I think, even more aggressively covered in this game than they were against Oklahoma. I'm sure the Oklahoma tape helped Central Florida in their preparation for this, thinking, okay, we're going to need to get right up on these guys because it allows, you know, it doesn't give Bowman as much time if, they're, if they've got that many players right there on the line of scrimmage. So, um, yeah, it, it's tough, Dustin, but great breakdown. Yeah, and kind of just looking at it in the passing game, Cade, what you said, we talked about UCF being a heavy cover one. So man coverage with the single deep safety, heavy cover three, which you line up the exact same as cover one, but the corners will have the deep third. And then the safety still kind of has that deep middle. What they were doing is they were lining up in press coverage though, a majority of the game, which they've done this year. But what that does when you're talking about the receivers, they're pressing to Bowman he doesn't know if it's cover one or cover three. He's kind of got to wait to see if that corner is in press bail where he's running straight back into the cover three or if he's going to get aggressive on the receiver. And they did a great job of mixing this up along with mixing up their fronts, along with dropping a safety into the box late. It wasn't anything like galaxy brain X's and O's. 
because if it was, I probably wouldn't be able to call it out, but it was just smart football that they executed well. And it helps that they always are in cover one and cover three. So they can obviously execute that. Well, Oklahoma state attacked it early. You heard Addison Williams talk about it in his presser this week. They were going to the curl flats. They were going to a lot of the concepts that we've seen them go to snag mash, some of the stick concepts, some of those out, out and go. And then the hitches, because that's where you can find the holes in those seams. But as the game wore on, they just kind of started fixing their alignments and taking that stuff away. And I wanted to shout out Lee Hunter for them, defensive tackle. He played awesome, especially in Ricky Barber's absence. Jason Johnson, their linebacker, who we called out as a good player, he played really well. And then Damari Henderson, I don't know how well he played overall, but man, was he not in the right place at the right time? <laughs> yeah, so the many times. Game. Yeah, the whole game. But uh, a couple other stats, Cade, 2 of 12 on third down for Oklahoma State. 1 of 7 on third and third and 4 between 8 yards to go. Oof. So third and medium, they were absolutely terrible. And then UCF was bringing some second-level pressure that that I really liked in this game. It wasn't like they were blitzing 5 or more a lot, but the second-level guy was timely. And if you go look at PFF, and I agree with this based on my analysis – they have Alan Bowman only under pressure like 16% of the time. The pass pro wasn't that bad. It was just they weren't converting these plays consistently. And then with no run game, it just it it was just like like we said, it there, there was no rhythm to the offense, I, which will lead you to blame Casey Dunn because if nothing's working, the offense looks all out of whack. So it's hard to call plays, which goes back to our point earlier this season execution play calling offensive coordinator they're all intertwined so when the offense performs bad and executes poorly you're obviously going to think the offensive coordinator performed poorly because he did yeah it's a great point i think two of oklahoma state's three turnovers also came in that third and i'd have to go back and double check this but if my memory serves me correctly two of their three turnovers came on third and medium. Uh, I'll, I'll double check that or somebody will tell me that I'm an idiot in the comments of our uh, Twitter this week. But <laughs> I, I do think that that happened and it just kind of speaks to Oklahoma State, you know, sputtering all day long. And as you go back and watch it, like which is is painful enough to do opening drive, you know, they they pick up a first down, get called for holding and immediately fumble it on the next play. Like it is a it was a really tough, <laughs> tough day for them. There's. To me, it's like it's hard to talk about because nothing there. There were some positives, but you really have to look for them. Like you really do. Yeah. Uh, okay, Kate. So moving on to the PFF snap counts, just a couple interesting things. Austin Kowecki came in at center before like the true second string offense came in. We mentioned Joe Maholski was sick this week. He didn't practice. Mike Gundy and Robert Allen both confirmed. Robert Allen on Pokes Report, Mike Gundy and his presser that he didn't practice at all. It also looked like the training staff was looking at him late. So not only was he sick, but he may have gotten banged up. And I think that's why Koeki got in. Taylor Matirko, as you know, if you watch the game, got a majority of the snaps at left guard. He got absolutely dominated by Lee Hunter on multiple occasions, which Lee Hunter played really good. And he did it to other offensive linemen too. I just wanted to note that out. Sessi got in at running back and also Cade, Elijah Collins didn't play a single snap 
I'm thinking maybe he's hurt. I, that, that's the only way that makes any sense to me at all is, I mean, that he's been your number two guy mostly for, for most of the season. Yeah, so he might be hurt. And then Blaine Green got back, and he got some snaps at H and at X. Mike Gundy said he's not fully 100% back, but he did come into the game. He said he should be even more ready to go this week. Personnel and motion-wise, they were heavy 11P with Josiah Johnson out there 64% of the time. We saw the return of 10 personnel with Blaine Green back because now they have enough wide receivers to do it. So they brought that back out. I know we've been talking about first downs a lot on the pod. Pretty even run plus run pass split there. 36% motion is what I charted. They started going tempo in the second half and kind of went away from it. But early in the game, it was heavy motion, especially during the script. There was motion on almost every play. So I think the game plan was to stay in motion. I just don't think they thought they were going to be down 24 to zero right. at some that early in the game. But it was orbit return. They did that cheetah fast motion that the Dolphins do with Tyreek Hill. They even did, they even ran that motion and then kind of ran a dig route with Presley where he comes back in. The Dolphins literally just ran that and a bunch of X's and O guys on Twitter called that out. And then Michigan copied them by running it, I think like last week, <laughs> then Oklahoma State did it there. So it's fun to kind of see Oklahoma State continue to incorporate some of these new things. They did the running back shift where Ollie shifts from pistol to offset. That's 100% due to the fact that they had so much, so much success during that first part of the five-game winning streak with Ollie running out of pistol. They can't just line him up in pistol anymore. If, they're, if they want to run him out of pistol, they have to have him offset, put him back in the pistol right before the snap so the defense can't get ready. And then I had 49% play action or post-snap RPO. PFF had that at 41%, so pretty close there. And then, yeah, I, the last note I had on the personnel was that diamond formation note that I already talked about. But anything interesting, Cade, from that kind of personnel and motion breakdown or those any of those snap counts? I, I just think it's interesting how none of it work, worked. Like, And most of Oklahoma State's production came in the Agreed. first quarter. Like, so, you know, I, I just – I would not want to be one of the guys reviewing the tape this week and trying to figure out, okay – like it, it literally feels like a burn the tape game because there's not a ton that you can glean from this. You almost feel like you just have to keep trying to do what you do. I think you made a great point about having to pull Ollie offset motion and back into pistol right before the snap. Like the things that Oklahoma state was kind of building this entire season on teams seem to be keying on it and injuries at receiver are a huge part of this. Like you, you, if you had Dijon Stribling and Jaden Bray out there, does throwing the ball suddenly get a lot easier? And do you score on the possession that it's 14 nothing and ball goes through Leon Johnson's hands, turns into a pick, and UCF scores on the next possession? Like, those things matter. They really do. Yeah, and that's the problem with keeping it simple, what we've talked about. if uh, And I'm fine with keeping it simple, but the thing is you have to continue mixing things up, using unique motions like yeah. we saw in the OU game doing different things you can keep running the same passing concepts you can keep running gh counter and inside and wide zone you just got to mix th mix things up and what happened in this game to your point is once they got down by a lot it was almost just like hey we gotta throw it so let's <laughs> just throw it so you kind of see that motion tamper off when i think it probably would have ended up really high again probably plus 50 percent if they're in this game but you know, just kind of, Cade, we can move on to the position groups now. And as we talk, 
offensive line and Ollie and Bowman, we can talk more about the scheme and the passing and run game. But Gundy even said it. They didn't block very well. They were moving guys around. We talked about Materko having to start. We talked about Maholski being banged up. It just, Casey Dunn even noted it. It had an effect on the game. We've seen Jason Brooks at left guard perform pretty well. We've seen Cole Birmingham at left guard perform pretty well. Well, he missed practice all week with an injury. So he just dealing with the injury bug again. So you're down to your third string left guard. And man, I, I think he struggled. No offense to Taylor Materko. I think he seems like an amazing guy whenever they interview him. Just trying to break it down how I saw it. I thought he struggled in both pass and run blocking. I mentioned Lee Hunter dominating him just because I don't like to just throw out things, terms like that without giving some examples. The last play of the third quarter, first and goal, dominated and made the tackle on the Ollie run. And then the first play of the fourth quarter, which is the literally the next play, he got dominated by Hunter again and Hunter made the tackle. It was a tough day for Materico and he honestly was probably one of the main ones who I call that as struggling a bit in pass pro. So I wanted to highlight him because he truly is. That's your third string left guard that you're yeah. down to now. And if you go, if you go watch it, Oklahoma state was still trying to go left. Like we we've called this out on the podcast several weeks in a row. Like when they're running the ball, well, they're running the ball left. They've become more balanced of late, but that was where they kept trying to go and they kept trying to go behind the guard and it was just not working. And it was, it was, it was hard to watch because you didn't see many of those sweeps, the truck sweeps that they've been running. I just don't know if they had the ability to get to that, that point in the playbook with the way these drives were ending. Yeah. And they really didn't pull Materko at all. Now, again, they didn't Part run very it, many yeah. counters in the second half. They could almost completely went away from counter until Sessi got in late. So that could have been a reason as well. They weren't pulling anybody, but you know, Cole, he looked hurt. Kate, I wanted to note one thing on him. He had the poor blitz pickup on the intentional grounding. It looked like he couldn't move. Yeah. I don't know where the injury is at on his body. It was a great blitz call from UCF. It would have been tough for him to get there, I think, even if he was fully healthy. But it, it looked like he was stuck in mud when he was trying to move over and kind of pick that blitzer up and come off his double team. What'd you think of that call? You, you good with intentional grounding right there? I just, you could barely even see that play <laughs> with the rain on the camera. I I don't love that Bowman did that, threw that yeah. at all. I think you just take the sack there on third and seven. I get it. You have to punt from farther back. It'd be great not to lose those yards, but it wasn't, it would have been like a five yard loss on the yeah. sack. I think just overall, I would have probably preferred he took the sack there. <laughs> I would agree. I just thought the call was a little strange. It, it looked like Bowman was, was trying to get it to Rashad. Maybe it's Brennan Presley. I don't know, but you're right. Take the sack. It was already a tough yeah, day. I agree with you though. I agree. Yeah. It, did, it did look like it maybe was an intentional grounding. Brooks has been confirmed out for the season. And then Maholski, you know, I, I don't even really want to grade him knowing that he didn't practice all week and yeah. and he was sick. So I think he might have been injured and sick, but I thought he was pretty decent in pass pro. He had a big whiff on Nixon's first run. And I, you know, I saw a bunch of comments on Twitter right after that run, like, man, 
we're never going to be able to do anything if Nixon's in there. That was not Nixon's fault with 1330 left in the first quarter. And I thought Nixon had a really good run later. So that whiff was completely on Joe. So I just wanted to call that one note yeah. out on, on Mahalski. And I like, I like giving Nixon his flowers a little bit, or at least protecting them because it's not like we're anti Jaden Nixon. I just, I just think you lose a bit in the vision category there, but I definitely think people listen to this podcast. So, you know, I, I thought he came in, had a nice run in the second half, but it's tough. I mean, if if you can't run behind Ollie Gordon and Elijah Collins, isn't your, your next guy available. This is, it's going to suck. Right. And not, not that this was any, and my one note on Wilson, I'm just trying to give like one big kind of comment on each guy. Kate. Yeah. yeah. Preston Wilson, the holding on the QB draw RPO, that's tough because I don't think that guy was going to get to Bowman. I know he doesn't know that. I know he wasn't trying probably to hold. You can't get called for that there. You know, we went over the things you can't do by each position. QB, don't throw interceptions. Running back, don't fumble. Wide receiver, don't drop it. When you get to the line, don't get caught holding. I don't care if yeah. you hold. There's holding on every play. You can't get caught, though, and that was right in the – and he knew – that it was a QB draw. So he knew Bowman was going to be moving through that area. Well, that was I a huge overall, call too, Dustin though, because oh, yeah. maximum first, first and 20, and 20 Leon Johnson over the middle, wide open ball goes through his hands, picked off like the huge moment in the game. Yeah. And I, I, my one comment on Wilson besides the holding was, I just thought it was probably his worst game. Not that it was anybody's best game, but he had that holding because of the way UCF was playing the counter runs, he got absolutely blown up on several pulls. There was one where Jason Johnson on a GH counter pull, nine minutes and eight seconds left in the first quarter, just blasted him. And Walter Yates was able to run free and tackle Ollie for, I think, I think it was like a one yard loss on that play. But yeah, I, Preston Wilson has been really solid all year. We've shouted him out. We've given him his flowers. So I did want to critique him a little bit here because I did think he maybe struggled more than some of the other guys did in this game. And I, I think it had to do with some scheme stuff as well. Story of the game too. Mo most guys that you were able to count on th to this point in the season did not play very well. I actually thought Cooper was pretty good. I, I had decent in pass pro, decent. In run blocking, he had a tough pass pro snap on second down late in the third quarter when Bowman tried to check it down to Nixon. But other than that, I actually thought he opened a few holes that Ollie missed, and we'll get to those later. But I thought he had a pretty good game. And then I wanted to shout him out. He absolutely destroyed DeCorian Patterson for UCF on the halfback screen to Ollie early in the third quarter. Go back and watch that play. He throws him out of bounds like he's I will. <laughs> made of nothing. <laughs> Great. I can't wait to go watch that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was digging for positives on my second yeah. rewatch. Jake Springfield coming off maybe his best game. Shout out to Adam Lunt. He was the first guy to call that out. We kind of used some of his takes on the pod last week. Not that we don't always do that, but I thought Jake wasn't very good in run blocking, and I thought he was just okay in pass protection. There was a third and nine Nixon run that he – whiffed on completely and then it looked like he maybe even got hurt after the play but he got back up because he's a tough guy I, after gi giving him so much credit last week i thought we had to at least shout that out yeah i it, it's a story of the game a little bit for me man. yeah they, they like a they struggled record, they got their butts you know? whipped up front you know we talked about it with ou us whipping their butts well we got our butts whipped this time i i also one of the things that i struggle with was like if you go back and look at this like 
I think you said this earlier, but I'm going to reiterate it. They they don't look like they were firing off the ball very well. Like no, they, no, they I weren't. Some, I think some of the things that UCF was doing early may have caused them a little, given them a little cause for uh, concern. And whether they were hurt, banged up, or anything going into it, I think what UCF did during the game definitely impacted their desire to get off the ball and hit somebody. Yeah, it's a great call out by you. UCF kind of like stacked the Lego block on top of what OU kind of laid the foundation for last week. They kept the backside pursuit, which we saw from OU, but they brought additional pursuit from the front side on those counters, what what I broke down earlier. So there was literally no cutback and there was nowhere to go on the front side. And Oklahoma State just did not adjust fast enough. And they got down by so much. It just... There was no way to kind of counter punch what UCF was doing because of the turnovers. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. One call out I had on the backups Dotson coming in at left guard. He had a pancake with 110 left in uh, the fourth quarter on a GH counter run. And then on the very next zone run, he had a really good block. Hey, if Birmingham and Brooks can't go, do you give Dotson a shot over Matirko? I know he has like zero experience. But if those guys truly cannot go, you know what you have in Materko. Do you just give Dotson a shot? Because you always have Materko you can fall back on. He's a solid offensive lineman. But maybe there's a higher ceiling with Dotson out there. I know Dickey does not like to go to the young guys, but just, yeah, just saying. I, I don't hate it. I worry about the timing. Oklahoma State's still fully in the thick of the Big 12 title Great call. race. They don't control their own destiny, but they are they are one domino falling from being right back where they were. And so to me, it's like I would I would slant towards playing the guy with more experience, but it's not like that's like a guarantee that that's going to work out well. So I don't hate it. I don't hate it at all. If he played well, then sure. But I, the odds of that happening feel slim. And you have to have the chemistry with Cooper on the left side. So Materko probably has better chemistry there. And what's Mahalski's status? Like if if yeah. Mahalski is actually banged up, I I wouldn't throw a you know a new guy out there at that left guard spot. I mean, you probably at this point to your to your great point, you may have to move Wilson over instead of putting Kowecki in there. That's Mahalski a great, can't go. Great option. I'm sure Due that they experience. Yeah. Hopefully Cole Birmingham can go. I mean, that's, that's the thing we're going to cross our fingers on, but if not like this offensive line, we did talk about this depth was critical, but we also talked about it early in the season that like, it's not like they're, they're loaded. Like they've got some guys past that first line of defense and now they're, they're dipping into, okay, well, do you, do you play Materko or Davis Dotson? And that's, that's not an ideal scenario for anybody. So this is highlighting, you know, maybe close to worst case scenario on the offensive line was you had a couple of injuries and now you're, you're not back where you were last year by any means, but it's, it's still not an elite unit that you can well, withstand. Yeah, that, the problem is, you know, you look at Houston, who we're going to preview in a little bit. They've played some of their backup offensive linemen, like 18 snaps. Total, right? Like a majority of their offensive linemen have played over 600 snaps. One of them's played 580. Oklahoma State at this point, like we mentioned, is playing their third string left guard. Right, right. So Which is it's just it's tough. I not making excuses. It's just it's the truth, and it's tough. But well, and if you go I, watch it, it it shows on tape. Like if you go yeah. watch and just watch the left side of the offensive line, it shows on tape. So 
Yeah, yeah, no, you're 100% correct. All right, run game, Ollie Gordon's uh, going kind of into him and Nixon, and we can talk a little, Sessie, if you want, but I saw 12 zone carry split zone was mixed in with both inside and wide. It looked like they were trying to go with more inside than wide to try to just open up some crease for Ollie to find a hole as opposed to kind of getting everything flowing because so many guys were in the box. We saw GH in the double tight encounter didn't really work at all until Sessi got in QB jar RPO in the draw RPO. And then the ISO, like I said, they pretty much went away from counter in the second half and were mainly zone, which was, was tough to see. Cause you could tell it was truly, we don't know how to block counter against what they're doing. And I don't know if we've got the personnel right now on the offensive line to do it, but Ollie 12 carries 25 yards, 2.1 yards per carry. He had two catches, three targets. He had the drop on the check down from Bowman, which honestly may have been a clear out throw to Ollie, which makes it even worse when I rewatched that. 27 yards. The one catch was on the snag concept. They finally didn't cover the arrow route from Ollie. We always see Bowman actually throw the snag. This time UCF adjusted, covered it, and they threw the arrow, which is normally the first read on that concept. I mean, it might not be for Oklahoma State, but normally, but you know, Gundy said he Ollie got a little frustrated. Dunn said he practiced really hard. Bowman was talking about emotions getting the best of everybody, not just Ollie. It sounded like, you know, that that Ollie truly was get, and you could see it him talking to the student section, things like that. And then Ollie even mentioned himself. By the time we found our rhythm, it was too late. He also had a great point. Kind of what we talked about with the offensive line. We didn't come off firing like we needed to. They fit every gap. They played strong arm technique, or I've heard it referred to as power arm as well, where they had a D lineman bouncing in and out of the hole. And it made Ollie second guess the hole. That's honestly Ollie's breakdown in that quote is basically what I think you and I saw as well. Yeah. It if you go back and look, it looks like he danced around in the backfield quite a bit. And it's, you know, that's like a derogatory term for a running back because it's not like he's he's not a uh, you know, a make somebody miss, you know, multiple guys in the backfield type of running back. So I just, I agree with his assessment that if that's what the defensive line was doing, it makes sense because that's what I saw Ollie Gordon doing, which was indecisive getting downhill to, to his credit though, there was not a lot of room. Like, you know, he, he was not great, but this is like, you know, throwing away a little bit of context. Like he's been elite for six straight games. I have a hard time feeling like all of a sudden he went to Orlando and forgot how to look at a defense and, and you know, pick the right hole. I just don't think that they were as, as plentiful as he's used to. Yeah, and you could tell. We talked about it last week that we heard he was banged up, not just the turf burn, but the ribs. First time he got hit, he was slow to get up. Yep. Then he injures himself trying to make the tackle and the interception, the first interception. You could tell he was banged up. He was on the bike. I think he was – I think he's hurt – all over and to your point earlier everybody on every team has hurt at this point in the season but you could see that really played into it one missed tackle forced in that game that's the least since he took over as rb1 in the iowa state game no 10 plus yard runs and then oklahoma state was only 2.7 yards per carry on first downs in this game and kid i mentioned earlier that i thought ollie missed some holes i had some examples Second and six with seven minutes, 11 seconds left in the first quarter inside zone had coop had a late 
uh, miss kind of Cooper kicked out and there was a hole between Cooper and McCurk Materko. I think he could have hit that 1320 in the second quarter diamond formation, the double fullback tight end counter run looked like he missed a hole there. And then third and five with eight 30 left in the third quarter. I thought he could have gone between Materko and Cooper again on that run. These were pretty large holes. The, the first, the first example and the third example that I gave were pretty large holes that it looked like he missed. Like you said, it looked like at times he was dancing and it looks like at times he was impatient. And I think that's just because they got uncomfortable so early in that game, running the football. And because UCF was playing their run scheme so well, defending it so well, I think it just got everybody all out of whack. And I, I don't really have any more notes, Kate on. I mean, he only carried it 12 times. I thought he had, I thought he still gave good effort in pass pro when he was asked to stay in and block. But other than that, that's all I've got. Here's the one thing I'll say. I wouldn't have played him in the third and fourth quarter. Like once this game got, I shouldn't say third. Once this game got out of reach and Oklahoma state, you know, was, was not going to win. I, he was in the game when the score was 38, three, I would have preserved those hits on his body if he's truly banged up. It's not an Ollie thing. It's actually a, you know, a personnel decision thing. I would have I would have attempted to get some of the other guys some run. Perhaps that's that's, you know, related to Elijah Collins not being available. Who knows? But, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, made me scratch my head a little bit about Saturday was you know, you're still right in this. If this is just a, a throwaway at this point, don't don't make him take another hit. Oh, it makes sense as a call out for sure. And then Nixon, like I said, that he had the only 10 plus yard run on that wide zone. Great blocking by Josiah Johnson on that play as well. Cade, wide receiver wise, you had Owens with six receptions on 11 targets for 85 yards. You had Brandon Presley with five receptions on nine targets for 52 yards. And you had Leon Johnson with six receptions on 11 targets for 61 yards. Presley had a drop and LJ3 had a drop. And honestly, Cade, there was a throw. I didn't count it. Second down, 835 left in the second quarter. Out route. Bowman threw it a little high. It was obviously rainy. But that that's one that LJ3 has to catch. It's If it hits him in the hands and he's not jumping, he has to catch it. I didn't count it as a drop, but there was just, you know, the great catches that Oklahoma State receivers were making in the OU game. We had the one on the slant that Owens tipped to himself in this game. That was awesome. But outside of that, I, and I know it was rainy. I, I'm not saying like these guys are terrible because they didn't catch these balls, but they didn't have the good kind of luck that they've had in some of these other games. And obviously, Bowen wasn't super accurate in this game. It was raining. But when you don't catch some of those balls and they start to build up, you know, I counted two drops. I'm saying there could have been three. You know, it's... Those are three big plays you needed back in a game where you didn't really score at all. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I, I thought that, you know, LJ3, after a couple of really good games, this was probably his worst. I mean, and it doesn't help that his drops, one of them turned directly into a turnover in a critical part of the game. So, you know, it's easy to put a magnifying glass on that. Rashad Owens, though, he had a drop. I mean, or, a, 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 you know, I guess you would call that a drop. I mean, that ball ends up getting picked off, uh, off the carom, but he had two hands on it. Brennan Presley had a drop. Like, I do think you have to call some of that out. UCF, it's a wet football, but UCF 
didn't seem to struggle as much as Oklahoma State did hauling in some of these catches. Um, I, I wonder how much of it, too, is, you know, just comfortability. Like, LJ3, like, he's he's played really well, but this was his – correct me if I'm wrong, Dustin, his first game on the road. I know he played a little bit in Morgantown, but this was like, you know, you're you're the guy. I just I, – I thought that he didn't do much uh, that I wouldn't have expected him to already just do. Yeah, and positively – he gets great separation on those hitch routes. He runs that route really, really well. He gets his hands out in front of him, makes the catch. He normally gives himself enough separation to where he can turn around. He doesn't normally make the guy miss, but he he gives himself the opportunity. He had really good separation on the deep ball in the third quarter, and Bowman did not make a good throw. LJ3 probably in drier conditions has a better chance of catching that, but it was not a good throw. And what you called out on the slant, it wasn't just the fact on some of those slant or glance routes on those RPOs that he's not that he wasn't catching it or getting separation. It's he's kind of drifting backwards when the ball is thrown instead of oh, yeah. coming up and making the catch. Like go get the ball. He does it on the hitch routes. He doesn't do it here. It, and my I think you know my take on it is not as many reps with Bowman. He doesn't always know exactly where he's going to put the ball. And then the second thing is he even called it out himself. He does not have a ton of experience running anything other than quote unquote high school routes to put it in his terms. And I think that drifting backwards, we see it on those sit routes and the mesh concept as well. He's just kind of drifting and floating almost reminds me of what sometimes we used to say Corey Black did that last year on yeah. defense. You got to go get the football, especially when it's wet. He had room to kind of come up and catch that ball in front of the DB and kind of drifted into him and let it become a contested catch situation. But I, I thought outside of that play and out, outside of those routes, I thought the hitch routes and like the deep ball, I thought Leon was okay. I thought he did okay blocking. Owens was a little inconsistent in this game. And I think it had to do with the weather. It didn't look like he could get good footing. He had the, the glance route with five ten left in the first quarter. He has awesome separation. And then the second quarter, He's not able to get separation on the hitch or on the glance routes. And I think he was having a little trouble getting his footing. I think UCF's DBs were doing a good job. You know, on the interception, he actually sat in the throwing window. Bowman just didn't put it in the right spot. Or I think Owens grabs that and it turns into a tip ball situation where he probably still could have caught it if he comes up and gets it. Like I'm talking about with LJ3, but I thought it was actually a good route from Owens. It was just a bad pass. And then, he had a really good block early in the game. And then he had, it was actually on the fumbled snap, uh, or right after the fumbled snap, there was a wide receiver screen. He had a really good block. And then he missed the block on LJ3's tunnel screen with 10.30 left in the third quarter. I also thought he probably could have caught that fade ball. That was a good yeah. throw from Bowman. Well, I think he did too, the way he came up. Yeah. I think he thought he should have. But 31 yards after catch, I, I didn't think I didn't think it was a terrible game. I just thought he was a little inconsistent. But I think also a lot of that was to do with the weather. And then overall, Cade, the wide receivers. No, we haven't talked a lot about Presley yet. Only one missed tackle forced after I gave them their flowers for like six last game. On a wet day, like on a rainy day where if you catch the ball, that's it's suddenly much harder to tackle you. That's disappointing. However, Leon Johnson the third and Rashad Owens, I don't think of them as, you know, force miss tackles kinds of guys. I think that's what you lose maybe more so than anything. The separation thing is big, but the ability after the catch 
that Jaden Bray and Dejon Stribling would have given you, I think is maybe more of what you lose without them out there. Yeah. On Presley, 2,000 receiving yards. He went over it in this game. He's now just 180 yards away from tying Josh Stewart and moving into the top 10 all-time in program history. Wow. So he, he mentioned it too, Kate. He said run after the catch suffers in the rain because you just got to think about making the catch. He only had 17 yards after catching this game. It's just tough when you're not able to get that dynamic guy going. The drop on the first and goal in the third quarter was huge. That was on first down. So it just kind of stalled that red zone series there. But positive news is... Dejon Stribling is apparently suiting up for practice and could be back for a bowl game and potentially if they go to the Big 12 championship, Whoa. even for that game. So Whoa. good news there. My last note on the wide receivers, well, last two notes, Tyke Andrews got in that slot and then Kale Cabanis at the Z. He's got to catch that pass from Rangel. Yes, he does. He absolutely does. Rangel wants that one too. Yeah. Uh, on the tight ends of bullbacks, my blanket statement for them, Cade, is going back to the scheme UCF played. When they're the second puller and the first puller is getting driven back into them or there's two guys running at them, who are they supposed to block? <laughs> right. That's not so that's I, not fair. Only 13 snaps for Casty, eight for Schultz, three for Quentin Stewart. If Josiah Johnson holds that block for a second longer on the Ollie Gordon fumble, Ollie shouldn't have fumbled it anyway. But if he holds that block, Ollie's probably gaining four yards on that run, and it's not a fumble, and the drive's continuing to go. But, you know, he gave great – I thought Josiah gave great effort on that post throw from Bowman. That was actually a really good throw, a great dive from Josiah. I, I'm not counting that as a drop, obviously, because he had to dive for it. But if he catches that, we're, I'm looking back at that on film saying, wow, what an anticipation throw right past that DB – into a diving Josiah Johnson's hands. And then my last line on uh, my last note on Josiah was when he was asked to block and pass pro, I thought he did a good job. I, it seems like every week he's getting more and more solid, at least in my opinion, I, it, as a blocker, he's, he's critical to what they're trying to do. Yeah. All right. Alan Bowman, 19 to 36, 225, three picks. The first one we already talked about, that was on LJ three. I, I don't even want to count that one on Bowman at all. I'm not saying he was the best throw ever or the most accurately timed throw ever, but LJ3 has to come get that football and catch it. Yeah, or I mean, don't let it pop into the air, tip drill. I I I won't even put anything on Bowman here. It was a good enough it was a good enough ball to hit LJ3 squarely in both hands at the ch at chest level. That's that needs to be caught. No question. Yeah. Bowman did say about the other two. He said the golden rule don't throw the ball over the middle, high over the middle. And he threw two of the three high over the middle. So we I thought, can say that there were chances for the other two to get caught, but I do agree with him. He shouldn't have thrown either of those. I thought that, he made the wrong read way. too on the, on the, on the mesh to Rashad Owens. They got tipped up straight over his head, you know, Jermaine Gresham style. I thought that that was the wrong read. He, it looked like he had LJ three sitting right into the flat or not in the flat, but kind of right in that second on the crosser. Yeah. On the crosser. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I agree. There, there was a tight window. That's what I was trying to say. But he had to put that inside of Owens, like back towards the middle of the field, or it was it was going to get picked. Because yeah. if he goes even a little, like an inch farther left, and that defender's just catching it. So it was, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it was the right throw, and it definitely wasn't placed in the right spot. 
And then on the scissors, the deep crosser, he just threw that one too high. And I get it. There was a defender there, but, but don't throw it. If you're going to have to launch it that high, because I mean, it's a huge one, huge one that you yeah, were about just, to get that to two scores. Yeah. There, there, there's no way like looking back on that. He thought that was a good throw. Other than that, Cade though, with the conditions, he said for half a quarter, he couldn't even grab the ball, not <laughs> throw it. He couldn't grab it. He said he's never played in that. He said the drop snap, he legitimately couldn't grab the ball. It was like a hot, like a like big watermelon, like Gus Malzahn was saying, it like was, hot potato. It was a monsoon, not literally, but it. I've not, I've never seen a football game like that, and it almost seemed as though it rained harder when Oklahoma State got the ball. Maybe I was imagining that, and it's because they couldn't run the ball, but that's what I felt like. Yeah. He said it was weird not having the ball first and not being able to go down and score. So maybe Oklahoma State tries to rig the coin tosses going forward to do that. But a couple of interesting notes on him, Cade. 2.21 time to throw. That's his fastest this season per PFF. Only one true throw away. That's the least since he took over as a starter. And I had him with three turnover-worthy plays, but one of them was not the interception. One of them was the throw to Brennan Presley with 358 left in the third. He threw that ball directly to that defender. The defender overstepped because he was chasing Presley. If the defender stops and plants, it, that ball is hitting him in the chest. He ended up kind of having to dive left a little bit, but he got both hands squarely oh, on wow. it, and it was nowhere near Presley. Again, that was kind of a – he had held the ball for a second, so I think Presley was trying to find some space. So it wasn't like the worst throw of all time, but I am going to count that as a turnover-worthy play because that defender should have caught it. I'll go. I'll go back and watch it. I didn't. I didn't catch that one. And then he got banged up on the QB draw where the holding was. You know, he started the game ten of eleven for one hundred and sixteen yards. He was hot. And then and, the, and the, pick, the one incompletion during that was the drop pick from LJ three. So that's not even on him. Yeah, he technically should have been eleven for eleven for one hundred and twenty yards. I'm telling you, it, he was hot. The offense was moving. It was the the turnover. I I thought Oklahoma State had a shot when it was seventeen nothing. The way the offense was moving, and then everything grinded to a halt when the rain started coming down. Yeah, you know we talked about his bad throws already. There was the fourth and one where he was pressured and he threw it low to BP. He was pressured on the check down to Nixon. He had the ollie drop as well. I did think the throw on fourth down to LJ three in the end zone was bad, but outside of those, you know that the fifty three percent completion rate. I didn't think it was like the worst performance I've ever seen from him considering the conditions. He only threw two balls 20 plus yards downfield and he completed one of them. Most of his completions were in the middle of the field. You know, I talked about the 16% under pressure. He wasn't blitzed very much. The pass protection wasn't terrible. He could have made some better throws. He could have been a little bit more accurate, but like, like I said, like I've already said like 10 times due to the conditions, I'm not going to kill him for this one. I, I already yeah. got onto him a couple games ago, and I didn't think this was that bad of a performance. I, I I actually agree with that. I think it was really easy to pile on Alan Bowman, but if you go back and watch it again, this was actually if the interceptions don't happen, where you had two receivers, it hits the ball, hit the ball hits them in the hands. This was actually kind of a standard Alan Bowman performance. If you take those right. away. Like this was not out of the normal at all. What happened is you couldn't run on air. It felt like. 
hundred percent, Katie. You literally, you literally took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say what happened is you had to ask Alan Bowman to go and win the game, and even he himself is telling you he's not that guy, pal. Right? He's and not run, that guy. Run on air is unfair to UCF's defensive line too. Like they were good. It's not. It's not as though Oklahoma State should have just walked into that game and ran all over them. They played a great game, but that's why Oklahoma State lost. Like they they could not move the football yeah and we gave ucs defenders their flowers at the beginning of this offensive breakdown so i i think that they were awesome i think addison williams their defensive coordinator did a great job apparently he's normally up in the box he was on the field the whole game i'm assuming because they couldn't see really that's crazy no <laughs> i don't know why he was on the field he said it in his presser and I, wow. I noticed in previous games I watched that he was in the box, but he said I'm normally in the box, and I know he was on the field because they showed him a bunch. I'm I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that Oklahoma State was walking Cheating? in there with, oh, oh. You know, we like conspiracies on here. Just something to think about as we move to the defense. Just something to think about. I, I, had, a, I, had, I had an inkling. Okay. Let, do we get into the defense? Yeah, we can talk about the defense. This was a – strange game Cade again Gus Malzahn said this is the best his offense has performed all season he 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 looked Gus Malzahn honestly looked like shocked that they played so well in the presser and that that's probably just me I'm sure if a UCF fans listening to this they're like no dude you're an idiot you're just trying to make it sound better for yourself it truly looked like that to me he was like these guys played amazing it was they were like almost flawless it's weird that, I mean, they ran for 293 yards and threw for 300, like against Oklahoma State's defense, who by and large has been pretty good. Like nobody has done that to Oklahoma State's defense this season. Almost it's been one or the other. Yards. It's been one or the other. And for, for whatever reason, Oklahoma State couldn't defend anything that they were doing. And credit to, I mean, RJ Harvey is a freak. And I would take either of Javon Baker or Kobe Hudson uh, if they were willing to get into the transfer portal, I would take either of those guys. And along with being banged up, what we said in the preview, one of the things that worried us, not only R.J. Harvey being good, Johnny Richardson, who didn't even really get that many attempts in this game, but along with those guys, I said if Townsend's back, these three receivers are one of the best we that did. Oklahoma State will have faced. And I also said they're much better than what OU put out there the week before. Javon Baker, Kobe Hudson, and Xavier Townsend, even in those conditions – were awesome. I, I thought they were awesome. I thought also Oklahoma State's defensive backs didn't play very well. Yep. I thought John Rice Plumley played well. And when RJ Harvey, it when the holes are opening up like that for a guy with that talent, yes, he's going to break 92 yard runs off. Well, and Oklahoma State early on cooperated. Dustin, they had a drive. I I, I need to go back and look at the timing on this. I think it was 14 nothing, where they had Central Florida to first and 20 second and 23 and third and 14 and they gave up a first down on all of those those were on mind you separate first and tens like it wasn't like it went first and 20 second and second second and 23 that was after another first down they gave up three on on three in I'm, I'm butchering this dustin you know no, what no, i'm no, trying I've, to say i've got it pulled up i've got it pulled up okay that was so, the game for me the one, the series where uh, John Rice Plumley scrambled and got that yes, third and 15. Yes, yes. Yes. So they got a third and 15. They gained 17 yards. On third and six, they gained 38 yards. And then 
into the next quarter, they had the third and yeah, they had third and 14 pass interference. Again. Yeah. <laughs> so it was terrible. That was all on the same drive. It was terrible. Thank you for bailing me out, by the way. I was trying to pull it up as I was talking, but it was terrible. And that was where I felt like, okay, this is uh this may be a lost cause because Oklahoma State, that has been a problem. I mean, Oklahoma did it to them, Kansas did it to them, was getting off the field on third and long, and they didn't do it. Gundy said he was concerned about their offense not getting off the field on third down. We noted UCF being 50% on third downs. They were 50% in this game. That was one issue. The deep balls, Kate, I will say, Gundy mentioned on the deep balls, a lot of the times Oklahoma State had someone right there. They really did have yeah, pretty did. good coverage on several of those deep balls that they hit. They were beautiful throws from John Rice and great body kind of control and hands from their wide receiver and core, who I think is amazing. I was trying to rave about them on the podcast last week, and I don't think I did a good enough job. I mean, Kate, if you go back and listen to the predictions, you were I think you were shocked at my one touchdown OSU prediction to win. I just felt really no, weird no, no, about no, no. this game with this offense. I was not maybe maybe I came off that way. I just felt really good about Oklahoma State's ability to rebound. We had heard a lot about, you know, this team is putting last week behind them, but then it comes out Tuesday and Wednesday were terrible days at practice. Like this team was emotionally drained. You nailed it. I did not. I was, I was probably <laughs> well, I'd still got it the wrong. orange Kool-Aid. Yeah, I guess you didn't nail it, but uh, I, I was sipping the Kool-Aid. You were, you were not necessarily, you thought this was going to be a tight game. Um, but I mean, Plumlee completes 11 passes for 300 yards. I mean, that is, that's pretty easy math, Dustin. He didn't even have that good of a completion percentage. I mean, 61, that's good, but it's not like amazing. He the only chunk completed played, 11 passes. I mean, it was Madden-esque. I mean, truly like the way that they were, ex that he was extending plays and the luck factor. I don't have a number on this, but it felt that they got lucky on a couple where, the underthrown that goes to Kobe, uh, uh, Kobe Hudson, that was an underthrown ball, got Corey Black in a tough position, and then it goes for for six. So I, I just they were really good. Oklahoma State cooperated, as you kind of alluded to, with the defensive back play, and RJ Harvey uh, commanded the game for them. Yeah, I'll say this too. Sorry, Dustin, they couldn't stop Plumlee on the ground. That was important, no. and they couldn't. They haven't – I feel like they haven't really played a team using a true zone read like UCF was doing yep. here. I know KU does a little bit of it, but they kind of incorporate more of the counter stuff yeah. option. This was true zone read, the way it was invented, which Gus Malzahn has always done. And they, they ran it to perfection. And I, we'll get into the defensive line. But, Kate, I wanted to call out for UCF. I want to give them their flowers again. They had – I talked. I said last week on the pod, you remember me saying – They've played three different guys at center. Bula Schmidt, Caden Kittler, and Drake Metcalf. They played a fourth in this game. They played Lokahi. I'm not going to try to say his last name. I got it right on the pod last week, and I don't want to mess it up. He's been one of their best linemen. He played center in this game. He hasn't played center all year. I don't know if he when the last time he was. I didn't go look it up. He played center in this game. And this offensive line, who had Marcellus Marshall back, who's been banged up. They've got guys banged up. Bula Schmidt's been banged up. They're playing a guy at center who's brand new at center and they dominated. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's unfortunate, really unfortunate. Yeah. And you know, that 
just talking about some of the other things, the deep ball on Corey Black, that was such a weird play. When I went back and watched that, I think what that play was, so there was the Trey Rucker comes down on the blitz and goes off sides. I think some people stopped because it sounded like, apparently it sounded like maybe there was a whistle. So there's one. Second thing was, I think that was the trick play. I've seen a bunch of teams do it. And you can tell me I'm way off here. The offensive line doesn't move at all. Have you seen that trick play? Oh, run? Yeah, I know for that sure. Tennessee ran it with uh, Peterman who threw all the pick sixes in the NFL. Nate, I might've <laughs> said his last Peterman. name wrong. Nathan yeah. Peterman. Yeah. So he, they did it with him and he got absolutely crushed. It's like a hilarious clip that, you know, was on Twitter. The offensive line doesn't move. So I think it was a trick play, which, which confused the defensive line. They didn't even go attack the quarterback. I think the offsides caught everybody off guard because if they did hear a whistle because Rucker may have touched someone, I think that again, I hate to use this pun again, but the perfect storm led to that huge touchdown because, and then Corey Black should have tackled him right away once the play kept going. But those three factors combined that you're talking about the luck. I mean, that was just ridiculous. I had a bunch of people asking me if that play was blown dead. I didn't hear the whistle, but I didn't go back and like listen for it. But the offensive line didn't move. The defensive line also didn't move. It was it was well done if it was a trick play and and part of me it was believes that it would have been I mean that's that's totally in the realm of possibility yeah so uh but yeah the, Malzahn even said you know it was really hard to throw it for a while everybody was saying it so it's not just an Oklahoma State excuse there also said John Rice Plumley isn't is still not a hundred percent so look oh. out to whoever has to play UCF yeah, no if kidding. he ever gets back to a hundred percent because he the way he can run. As a true runner, not a scrambler, like a true runner is incredible paired with RJ Harvey. Yeah. I I I don't know what Alan Bowman's future looks like, but John Rice Plumley, if he has any eligibility, would be curious on if he likes cheese fries and, and neon palm trees. Cause I think he's, he's like awesome. 30 years old. Yeah. But <laughs> but yeah, that you know, Malzahn said Oklahoma State was bringing safeties down, blitz and playing man on the outside. And they just kind of took advantage of it. I was, Cade, I don't know if you were, and maybe I shouldn't have been because of how much they played this year. I thought man on these receivers was a little aggressive in this game. I, I hate to call out Nardo's play calling because he knows mo more about football than I'll ever even get close to knowing. And I've, I've understood man coverage in other games this year, but they were heavy man. And I, with the rain, it makes sense. But outside of the rain, even, they were pretty heavy man. And I think Javon Baker, Xavier Townsend, and Kobe Hudson are too good to do that on the entire game. I completely agree. Does any of that have to do with, you know, you're trying to keep as many guys in the box as you possibly can and just man up? Yeah, on the outside as the game went on. Defend Plumlee's ability to run and contain RJ Baker or RJ Harvey. None of that happened. So, uh, you know, it's. It's easy in hindsight, but I, I agree. That's a that's a big ask for guys like Cam Smith and Corey Black. I mean, they, they've gotten caught before this year. So, Yeah, and we talk about things getting out of hand for the offense because of how fast UCF scored. It got out of hand for the defense, too. They were in such a run. Not a, I'm not even talking about an RPO. I'm talking about they were in such a run-pass conflict at the third level the entire game because they were so – you know, they had to pay so much attention to RJ Harvey that it caused them to 
lose a step in coverage. I think when they're in man coverage and even sometimes in zone getting into their drops because of how well John Rice Plumley and RJ Harvey were operating in the run game. And coach Nardo even said, it seemed like he underestimated the QB run game a little bit. He said the QB run aspect caused him to move things around that he didn't really want to in, in terms of coverage. And you could see it was just, he said he was trying to chase in the play calling too much in this game. And I think the players were trying to chase in their execution too much in this game. Yeah, it, it was tough. I mean, when your defensive line isn't getting to push and is getting pushed around, I mean, is, is the zone read like the perfect, you know, if you can run it well on a three, three, five, is that like, that feels like the perfect kind of conflict to put a, a six man front in. Yeah, I, I mean, you saw what happened, Cade. This was the least amount of snaps for Cody Walterscheid this season. They basically had to put Latou and Brown out there to get someone quicker out there because when you only have the three, three defensive linemen, you need someone to eat up the double teams, but you also have to have somebody that can play that conflict a little, a little bit, bit of better. range, yeah. As we've seen, you know, in the past, like Colin Oliver or that guy that plays for OU now kind of attack the mesh point and make the play even before the mesh can be done in the three, three, five, to your point, you can't really do that without a true edge guy coming off. And when you have guys like Cody Walterscheid out there or Xavier Ross, it, it kind of steps you back even further with it. Just yeah. having that, you know, kind of that three, three, five that we talked about, but you know, Nardo mentioned it was one dimensional to stop the run as the game went on. And that made them so predictable on the back end to your point about the man coverage. So he kind of agreed with you there. He said he thinks he personally jumped off script too soon. And I can kind of agree with that, but it's it's back to the point. They got down by so much. You're kind of just scrambling, trying yeah, to figure out something to do. But he, he, you know, he said they practice awesome all week. He said Kate, uh, Kendall Daniels is finally getting fully healthy. But yeah, I mean, it was just, it was really tough to watch. If you add back the 10 sack yards, Cade, like I like to do for Oklahoma State's offense, UCF rushed for over 300 yards. Yeah, and I don't know the last time that's happened, but it seems like it's been an eternity since anybody's yeah. had remotely that much success on the ground against Oklahoma State. I had one more kind of, or two more kind of stat scheme things before we talk about the players. And on defense, I think we do truly not go player by player because I think we've got some good blanket statements. Rushes of two yards or less that converted in either a first down or a touchdown UCF converted on a 67% clip on those runs. I mean, you're not going to win games if no, that's happening. No. Absolutely and then not. the last scheme thing that I had was UCF was stacking their receivers quite often in this game. And it allowed that second receiver when they're stacked kind of in a single file line to get a clean release, even if there's press coverage, because you, you're not gonna be able to hit the second guy. Multiple plays, especially I think it was two of them on Dylan Smith were to that second stacked receiver. So something Oklahoma State's going to have to adjust to on film because we haven't seen a ton of stacked receiver sets against them this year, something that UCF has done all year, and it's going to be something that they're going to have to scheme against, kind of like we've talked about earlier in the year with the slot receivers going off. Yeah, it's a really good counter, too, to the way Oklahoma State has defended. I mean, I think on an island they've been okay, but when you put, you know, like a Corey Black and a Dylan Smith or a – Cam Smith and a Dylan Smith or Cam Epps or whoever, you're putting some young guys in conflict positions like that. That's really tough. Yeah. 
PFF snap count wise, Kirkland again led in nose tackle snaps. Kelly got in there for 14 snaps. I'm wondering if Colin Clay maybe is a little banged up. Two games in a row, he's maybe. played like very minimal snaps, or it could be a scheme thing. And then Epps and Dylan Smith. Smith started, but they split those field safety snaps almost 50 50. But getting into the D line, Cade, I thought they got worked. In this game, I Kirkland had some good plays. I thought Goodlow had some good plays. I thought Nathan Latou, again, had a good game. But outside of that, Gundy even said the pass rush was average. I thought it was a little below average. On that scramble, the third and 15 we talked about, seven seconds before John Rice Plumley crossed the line of scrimmage. Seven <laughs> seconds. And UCF was doing some max protect, meaning they're keeping the running back in maybe keeping a tight end in at times, but still that is just too long. That was a four man rush versus a five man offensive line. And it's seven seconds went by. Then, you know, there was a, there was another play, I think like four or five seconds went by where Trey Rucker got beat on a scramble drill. I just did not think the defensive line was very good in this game at all. I didn't think they were good against the run. I think they were good against the pass. I talked about Cody, Cody Walter he made a couple good plays in this game, but you know, there's, there's a second and two on the first drive. He just kind of standing there watching the mesh. And then RJ Harvey blows right by him and yeah. Goodlow tries to make the tackle, but he's a little late. I did think Goodlow had a pretty good game overall. He made some good tackles, hustle plays. And then, like I said, with Latou, I had the most notes on him overall. He hit the QB a couple of times, just a split second late. I thought he was really good against their GT counter runs. I didn't think Ross contributed very much. I liked when Brown got in. I thought he was doing more. I thought Latou and Brown actually were doing more than Goodlow and Walter Scheid, even though I think Goodlow played pretty good. And then Jaleel Johnson, a lot of his snaps came late, so I didn't really have many notes on him. Yeah, I think you just go back and watch as a unit, maybe the most underwhelming game of the season. for. I mean, it has to be, right? You gave up so many yards on the ground and your inability to get a push led to a lot of the downfield yards that Central Florida was able to get. It was a bad game for them. They need to rebound badly. Thankfully, Central or uh, Houston's not going to push you down the field, I think, the way that UCF did, but I think they're going to try. They need a better game, big time. Yeah. Like I mentioned, Kirkland, I thought he played pretty good. I didn't have a ton of notes on Clay or Kelly. I did think Kelly had some good penetration late, but Kirkland, on the 92-yard run, he not only got his helmet ripped off by the center, but then he got tackled by their left guard. So that's one way to open up a hole, I guess. I'm not saying that I'm not blaming the 92-yard run completely on that, but Kirkland actually was getting some pretty good penetration in this game, and he got absolutely manhandled in an illegal way on that play. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so uh, moving to the linebackers, I thought they all played okay they got no help from the defensive line in this game and it was weird Cade because they would get washed and then someone would make a tackle or a lot of Nick Martin's tackles if he doesn't make them it's probably another 60 yard run right for right. RJ Harvey he apparently has been banged up as well he epitomized the keep fighting until the end because he was continuing to hustle late in the game I thought he had, he had a couple missed tackles I had him with but I thought overall he was good Colin Oliver, I thought he had some good pass rush snaps. I thought he fit the run poorly, though, on the zone <laughs> read multiple times. 
then he had a really good pressure in the second quarter in the red zone. He had a great backside tackle on a GT counter run at the last play of the first quarter. And the same with Benson. He had a really good tackle on a jet sweep first play of the second quarter. He had a good tackle on the wildcat from RJ Harvey. He had a good tackle on the play that was reviewed at the very beginning of the game, holding John Rice Plumley short. But, you know, they got the ball. Rice Plumley was getting the ball out pretty quick. And I just think that these guys, they let up big plays as well as making big plays, and they didn't get much help from their D-line. So overall, I'd probably say it was just an average game from them. Yeah, I mean, if you're rushing three or four, though, your your back half has to be better than they were, right? I mean, it, it, that's the that's the fact of the matter, but it is hard, as you mentioned, it's hard to cover for seven seconds, and they were having to do that. Yeah. The DBs, John Rice Plumley was six of seven on passes 20 plus yards down. Oh god. I There's know we stat. said that yeah, I know we said they were in good coverage on some of those, but that can't happen. You're gonna lose if that happens. You're gonna lose to anybody, not 45 to three, but you're gonna yeah, lose. Yeah, that's good, if- not great coverage. Like that's yeah. The safeties, I, I this was my note, you know, just general on the safeties. I thought they were triggering late on the run early. And then as the game went on, I mentioned it earlier, they were in this conflict where it was like, if we trigger on the run, we're going to get beat deep again. So then it was a hesitation, which led to bigger runs. It was just a snowball effect, which I think Nardo even used that same terminology, might have been done, a snowball effect as it kept going. Because you look at these guys, you know, Cam Smith, Hit a hit a good pass breakup, got a little physical. Maybe could have been defensive pass interference, but I think that off the receiver was fighting a little bit too. So that's a good play. But then he gets deep, beat deep in the fourth quarter to set up a first and goal. It was pretty much like that for every single one of the DBs. It was like I had a couple of good notes on them and a couple of really bad notes. So I'm just, I'm just sitting here thinking back through the last six games. They, you know, Oklahoma didn't do much on the ground by and large. Kansas didn't do much on the ground. This was the first offense they've played in this stretch of games that had the guys and the ability and the proven ability to hit you with both the run and the pass. And had you told me before the game that that was going to happen, I wouldn't have believed you because nobody's done it yet this season, but we have seen the cracks a little bit in the, in the run defense, I mean, everybody has hit Oklahoma State on a long run, like a long touchdown run. Central Florida hit them on multiple really long runs, but nobody's been able to do both. And that, to me, is like a recipe for disaster. You look on the offensive side of the ball, mistakes were the story of the game. This one felt like a bit of a, like, your defensive coordinator, your young guys getting baptized in a way. It's like you, you are finally playing an offense that can expose you on some of the things that you have gotten away with. And because this is the first offense you've played that could do that. So that's yeah. the way I felt live and rewatching it. Just so many explosives, six pass plays for 15 or more yards and nine rushes for 10 plus yards God, on the day for UCF. It's never going to do it. And then Dylan Smith, Kate, I wanted to call him out because this honestly, I should have said this last week, but this is what I was talking about two weeks ago when I gave him his flowers last week with him and Cam Epps because they're so young. Coach Nardo said his dad mentioned it to him. I think it was after the last game. You're going to have these great games because they're so talented, but you're going to have these mistakes. And UCF attacked Dylan Smith early in this game. Oh, yeah. They 
went after him. He had multiple balls thrown his way for completions and could have even had more. There was the one where he kind of, it was when the ball was, you know, soaking wet and John Rice Plumley threw it a little short. Dylan Smith lost coverage there. I believe it was on Hudson. And if that ball is just a little bit farther, then Hudson's either catching that on the one or it's in the end zone because Dylan Smith got beat on that kind of turnaround comeback there. On the first touchdown they scored, it looked like he was standing in wet concrete. And, and I'm not, you know, knocking him. It was really tough. It was like a fake zone read, throw it right over you. But I mean, it, it was. It was the opposite of what we've seen from Dylan Smith, at least last weekend. And that's a really good point that you brought up. Great quote from his dad, because that's what you get with some of these young guys. And and it sucks for him because they clearly circled him on film and said, this is who we're going after. But I mean, the film was there, I think, is is the disappointing part. Yeah. I, you know, Daniels. He had 11 tackles and a sack. I actually didn't think it was a terrible game from him. My one call out for him is when he's asked to play man coverage yeah. and not be the free safety, he's not quick enough. And I think teams notice it. You saw them motion the tight end across and see that Daniels was on him. And they flipped it to the tight end on the arrow route and got the first down in the red zone. And I, I mean, Daniels did a good job of recovering, but it was already a four or five yard gain. I just don't think he has the kind of quick twitch speed to catch up to guys like that when he's asked to be man covered. He's, he's not asked to do it a ton. It was just a call out I had. I mean, we talk about Colin Oliver being a tweener. I think it's fair to to question if Kendall Daniels may be as well with some of those things. I mean, this is not the first time his his quickness has been exposed. Yeah, and, but then, you know, he had the great tackle on the reverse to Hudson. He had a nice play on third and nine. It just, you know, sometimes he's taking bad angles. I didn't think it was terrible from him. The rest of the guys, you know, Corey Black had the DPI. I thought he struggled a little bit. He had a good tackle on his own read in the first quarter. But, you know, he let up that big touchdown. McKinney had the DPI. He had good coverage, and then he got beat deep early in the first quarter or early in the fourth quarter. Epps had a missed tackle. Trey Rucker had eight tackles, but he also, I had him for two misses and he had a really bad missed tackle on second and one in the second quarter. He got beat on the scramble drill. I can't really call him on that. And then Kale Smith, you know, I thought he got beat a couple of times, but he had really good coverage a couple of times. It was just so up and down from these DBs. And Kate, I, I don't really want to go into any more detail on him because I think most of the comments are kind of negative here. Yeah, I I actually was gonna tell you I'm done talking about it because yeah, this is this is uh you know, I, I think Oklahoma State is a much better football team than they showed, but I, I think if there is a weakness, it's it's the secondary right now. I mean that they, they they were abused. That's that's the word that was getting thrown out there, and that's the word I'll use. It was a it was a bad day for them. And Kate, you know what? We're gonna skip special teams this week because we lost so bad. I'm yep. not even giving them the time of day. Well, we'll shout him out for not uh, getting a shutout. That's what we'll say. Thank you, Alex. They didn't get a penalty this week either, did they? I don't think so, but they didn't have very many opportunities. I guess they had a bunch <laughs> of opportunities on punts, but they didn't punt it very much because they were turning the ball over. So that was, uh, yeah. Hudson Cock had some good punts. He did. So shout out to him. In, in the conditions. We should shout out. I know we said we weren't going to do special teams, but he made, obviously, that, that uh, snap that he fumbled, regained and took a couple of steps and kind of timed it up. 
and fired off a 35 yard punt. That was nearly a disaster that he turned it, into. It was a also really a nice low play. snap. It wasn't a just low the fact snap that he and he it. It dropped was a low it. Snap. Yeah, it's a great point. It, it, I, you can't really call it a fumble, but no, point good being, call out. It was nearly a disaster and he saved that play. So, yeah, I agree. Okay, should we move on to the Houston preview? I think we should, Dustin. Let's take a quick break to hear from a couple of our sponsors. I'll take this moment to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by our friends at Charlie Hustle Clothing Company. Charlie Hustle is a vintage-inspired clothing company based out of Kansas City that specializes in collegiate and hometown apparel. Charlie Hustle wants you to be the best-dressed fan this season, so be sure to check out their wide selection of officially licensed collegiate apparel today and show off your school spirit all season long. With over 30 schools to choose from, they've got you covered with all of your collegiate apparel needs. So shop today at www.charliehustle.com. And when you do, use our promo code 101215 for 15% off all non-sale items. Dustin, I'm rocking mine. I I don't know if you're rocking yours, but I just love it. It's an incredibly comfortable shirt, holds up well. Highly recommend the people over at Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle, vintage made fresh. And we'll hear from a word from Classic Overland. We want to say a quick thank you to sponsor the Feels Like 45 podcast, Classic Overland. Classic Overland specializes in restoring original Land Rover Defenders designed with your unique style and specifications. They go to great lengths to find quality vintage Defenders before they begin the restoration process, and their team of experts will guide you through the various exterior and interior options to create the perfect build. Our friends Luke Reed and Robert Dennis of Classic Overland are both Oklahoma State graduates and will work with you through the process to ensure you have a great experience. And in addition, if you purchase a Classic Overland Defender and mention this podcast, the Feels Like 45 podcast, their team will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Pokes with a Purpose NIL Collective. To learn more, you can visit their website, classicoverland.com, and you can contact Luke and Robert at robert at classicoverland.com. Thank you. And go Pokes. Well, just because Saturday sucked doesn't mean this Saturday has to, Dustin. Tickets as low as $4 in Houston, as I know you'll be there. Hopefully you didn't pay more than that because that'll get you down into the lower bowl. So highly advise uh, waiting or buying now. And if you bought early, sorry, because uh, I think there's going to be a lot of orange in Houston this week. Big opportunity for the Cowboys to right some of the wrongs. And as you look at Houston, Dustin, I think they want to hang their hat on their offense, but it's been tough sledding for them lately. Two of their last three include a shutout to Kansas State, some lackluster performances needing overtime to score 24 against Baylor in a game they won in Waco. But, you know, when you look at Houston, I think that this appears to be a game in which Oklahoma State probably feels like it's a get-right game defensively. At least that's the way I feel about it. Yeah, Kate, this is going to be a weird week for me in general. The reason why we had to record on Monday, I'm going to be out of town starting really early Wednesday morning through most likely early Monday morning because if my flight gets delayed like 10 minutes, I think we'll land yeah, and it'll you, actually be Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a and it's for a wedding. It's a destination wedding. I know what you're thinking. Who has a fall wedding that I could be friends with? 
during football season for a destination wedding. He is Australian, <laughs> went to college in Australia, does not have any college football ties. Cool guy, former pro rugby player, very nice. He he did ask, you know, our, our friend Alex Fuller's going, former podcast sponsor. He did ask us and checked with us about a home game versus a road game. So I do appreciate him doing it on a road game. It sucks that it's Houston because I, if if you've listened to the podcast, you know I lived there for almost seven years after college. A bunch of my friends are going. I won't be there. I was going to go. I don't even know, Cade, how much I'll be able to watch live, but that probably means I'm going to watch it six times on replay. Yeah, well, I hadn't even checked with you because I think the last time we had talked about it uh, was in the off se- well in the offseason. I just assumed you would be there with your ties to Houston, but the, the tickets are so cheap. Fully expect a lot of orange in that stadium. So it's an interesting. Yeah. There's a group of seven of my buddies who are all going shout out to those Good. guys, David, yeah. Mark, Randall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, David's not going, but he would go if he was going to be there, but a lot of those guys are going. So shout out to them. They'll be showing up in their orange. Yeah, hundred percent, and it's it's important. The Houston program's in a really interesting spot. They, along with BYU, seem to be struggling to adjust, perhaps the most to this level of play. This again, I call out. You know, the fan attendance has been abysmal. This is a program in need of a of a win like this. They almost got one against Texas at home earlier in the year. I don't know if you know. Part of me wants to say this is a, you know, blowout Oklahoma State win. The other part of me says Houston's probably, you know, foaming at the mouth to get a win like this. Yeah. Kate, you know, I tiptoed around UCF last week because I was scared of their offense. I, I think Houston's the worst team in the Big 12. And I know I said Cincinnati was one of the bottom tier, and that's because I was kind of saving my worst team in the Big 12 take for Houston. I've actually gotten to watch quite a few of their games and they just kind of struggle everywhere. If you want to get into their offense, yeah, 52nd in passing offense, 104th in rushing offense, 74th in yards per play, 85th in points per drive, 72nd in sacks allowed, 53rd in turnover margin. And then the F plus ratings, which I've started to add into these stats that combines the FEI ratings with Bill Con- Conley's S and P plus they're 64th. So you got Dana Holgerson kind of running that offense. We kind of know what he does. Also, been listening to a ton of Dana Holgerson press conferences. He's still absolutely hilarious. It was, you know, shout out to the Houston fan base and DJ Hayden and his family. You know, they lost him. Dana Holgerson actually said in his presser this week that there was ongoing talks about adding him to the staff soon. He was a volunteer coach at Second Baptist. Dana was really emotional about it after the game. So I, it definitely sucks uh, praying for them and, you know, everybody that is involved with DJ Hayden and his family there and all, all everybody else that was kind of involved in that situation. But I, I wanted to call it out because Dana is just so good in these pressers after last week. So they lost Matthew golden, their wide receiver for the season. He's out for the season. He hasn't been playing foot injury. Dana was like, but even though he's out, we've got other scholarship receivers on the team. Where are these guys at? Why haven't these guys stepped up? He's literally saying that about his own players and the presser after the game. It's just, he's just a ridiculous human being. 
It's kind of the anti Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy won't say a word in a press conference just to get through it. And Dana Holgerson will, will tell you exactly what he thinks. There's no right, wrong or indifferent, but Dana Holgerson's press conferences are, are appointment television. Yeah. So Cade scheme wise, Houston has really struggled against three, three, five teams. TCU scored 36 on them. K-State beat them 41 to zero. They just have not had a good time with these three, three, five defenses. And that's what they'll face against Oklahoma state, you know, coming off that loss where they only scored 14 points against Cincinnati, who Oklahoma state kind of ran all over. They've given up a lot of tackles for loss. It's just a, you know, they just haven't been very good. We know, we know their quarterback, Donovan Smith played against him at Texas tech, Oklahoma state destroyed him him at Texas tech. Yeah. They've got a good receiving core, but without Matthew Golden, they're kind of relying on Joseph Mann, Jack the fourth, who's been banged up Samuel Brown, both really good receivers. Dalton Carnes is going to step in for golden, but outside of that, they've got former Oklahoma state receiver, Stefan Johnson hasn't done a ton this year, but he's, you know, we know his upside. They've got Joshua Cobbs. Who's been banged up Jonah Wilson, a true freshman who's kind of popped onto the depth chart. And they've got Michael Laughlin and Matt Barnes at the tight end spots. But these guys, they haven't really contributed a ton. It's the, you know, Dana Holgerson, it's the air raid from the Hal Mummy, Mike Leach tree. It's a lot of four wide, a lot of empty from what I've seen in recent games. They'll do the RPOs on the ground. They do a good job with zone, power, counter, draw. They use their tight end a fair amount in the run game with some of those RPO concepts. I saw a lot of four wide in the K-State game where they got destroyed. They'll do some bash stuff where the back is going opposite of the flow. So GT counter for the quarterback, they'll hand it to the back the other way. They'll do jet sweep stuff, but they did a lot of that with Golden. So I'm not sure how much we're going to see going forward. Simple screens, quick hitches. They like to involve Smith in the run game. Dana's talked about it. Some games this season, he doesn't want to do it all the time, but in some games this season, they kind of had to. Against Cincinnati, their only run play that really worked was smith scrambling on pass right. plays but they'll do qbgt counter they'll do qbgh counter they'll do some fast tempo they'll do some motion it's it's not anything you haven't seen before the passing concepts are going to look a lot like oklahoma state's mesh y cross y sail four verts but it's the quick passing game they'll, they they want to throw it because they haven't had a lot of success running it but they want to attack you over the middle of the field so the safeties have to play well, and you got to force some incompletions. You can force some interceptions. He threw through three last week against Cincinnati. It's just going to be interesting because Oklahoma State got torched on the outside this season. And Donovan Smith, even though he hasn't completed a ton of them, he likes to throw it downfield. So Oklahoma State's got to be good in coverage. Yeah, I mean, that's even the way that I remember that game against Tech going was that he's he's going to look for the big shot wants to use his legs you said the word discipline I agree I feel like the quarterback run game getting him involved you know opens you up to some wrinkles where it may look to your eye like there's about to be a run play and then he actually throws it over your head like that's one of the things that worries me about this you know Houston offense they've got talent you know, they 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 just are not putting up a lot of points. They're turning the ball over quite a bit, but they've got talent. So if they put things together, yeah, this is a team that can put up, you know, 28, 30 on you um, fairly easily. 
Yeah, and on the O-line, they like have some sneaky good guys, yeah. and they all are huge. They're all 300-plus pounds. They just haven't been super consistent, and it's been the same guys all year. Like I said, when we talked about it a little bit in the other preview, Patrick Paul, Tyler Johnson, Jack Freeman, Tank Jenkins, and Ruben uh, Uneji, they've been there all year. It just hasn't really worked for them, and running back-wise, it's been kind of all over the place. Parker Jenkins, 5'11", 196, has kind of been their main guy. Leads the team in carries and missed tackles force and 10 plus yard runs. You know, it's a good zone runner. And they've got Tony Mathis Jr., who's transferred in, Stacy Sneed. They just, none of them have really popped. And it's kind of the same story with the wide receiver core. I like Samuel Brown. He's, he was a transfer in. He's a big outside receiver, tall. I like him. He's a deep ball contested catch guy, missed tackles force guy, yards after catch guy. But after that, when they lose Golden, Man Jack's been banged up, missing time with a concussion. And then the backup receivers, outside of the West Virginia game where Stephen Johnson had some good plays, he caught the Hail Mary. These guys just haven't really stepped up. And I think that's why Dana called them out. Yeah. Old friend alert, too, by the way. I, we talked about him. But I mean, Stephon Johnson, I, I don't want to say it, but it would really suck to see a game where he has, you know, many, many yards receiving. Yeah. And, you know, shout out to Stefan. We liked him, his dad, we know, listen oh, to the great pod. To so us. shout out, he shout out to him. To he's a cool yeah. guy as well. But yeah, it, Donovan Smith, Kate, I, I don't think we need to break him down. We kind of already have, he's a really good runner. He's six, five, two forty one. Don't let him run it. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's the thing you have to take away, right? Is the quarterback run any of those and scramble? The scramble, I you got to be wary of. I think it's the on schedule stuff that concerns me most. Like you, you can't let him just carve you up. I mean, John Rice Plumley was fourteen carries of seventy four yards. Like that's a stat line that would concern me if Donovan Smith had that on Saturday because that would indicate to me that some of their slower developing stuff, the QB powers that would indicate that that worked for them. So I, I think to me, if you can only pick one, it's you'll live with the off schedule stuff, but if you contain them first through th first through third down, like you feel okay about it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a, it's a good call out. All right. Okay. On their defense, if you don't have anything else in their offense. No. Okay. Their defense is <laughs> something else if you watch their games from like the beginning of the season to now which i tried to watch a little bit from all of them because i had seen this broken down by our good friend sam bradshaw on sikkim 365 and shout out to sam we use a lot of his notes on the pod to help us with some of these previews he's awesome whenever and you know he asks us questions as well so shout out to, Sh to sam for that so they completely changed their scheme yep midway through the season <laughs> they were running Doug Belk's four two five, and they switched to a three three five, and it's limited some explosives, but they've still been really bad on defense. Hundred and fourth in passing defense, ninety second in rushing defense, eighty eighth in tackles for loss. You know, a team like OU, who we thought you know said their defense was solid, but they were like third in tackles for loss. So if you're not going to have a great defense, you want to cause some havoc. They haven't been able to do that. Fifty seventh in sacks. 77th in defensive yards per play, 112th in defensive points per drive, and their F-plus on defense is 103rd. Oh, God. <laughs> since he rushed for 5.3 yards per carry, if you take out the sacks and the kneel down, if you just go look at the stats, you're like, oh, 
since he only rushed for 4.3, that's not that great. No, they get a whole yard back when you take away those sacks. So they're running backs. Kiner went for 129 and two touchdowns, 5.6 yards per carry. And then Montgomery only carried it five yards or five times, but 7.2 yards per carry. This defense has not been able to stop anybody. I know we said that about UCF last week. I realize we said that about UCF, (laughs) but I'm not expecting a monsoon. And these guys, UCF actually had been pretty good against the pass. These guys have been bad all around. And this is what leads me to say, I think this team is the worst in the Big 12 because I do think they have some guys on offense that can cause you some problems. I just think this defense, I do think they have some talent, but if you're going to switch your entire scheme in the middle of the season, you're obviously having major problems. Yeah, I mean, and I was told that that's not possible. And I actually believed that that, that's not possible. So the fact that they've done that leads you to believe that it was, I mean... (laughs) Could you imagine that conversation between Dana Holgerson and Doug Belk? That's like, yeah, no, Doug, we're we're doing this, and you need to get on board with it. Like that is <laughs> well. Can you imagine? Hey, this is a guy that everybody wanted as their defensive coordinator in the past two seasons. Their defense has just not been very good. Yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. I I think that also they're. I mean, they've they've gone on the road at Tech. They've played Texas at home. They got smoked by Kansas State. Like. I just think I'll use the word baptized again. I think they're getting baptized in the Big 12 and and seeing what this looks like week in and week out. I don't think they have the guys, you know, in the trenches. It's it's just been tough for them. And it's interesting because it was the program of the four that we thought and it's it's early, but it was the program of the four that we thought is the most capable and they're they're quite a ways off. Yeah, the one positive I will say since switching, they've been a lot better at, at- stopping the explosive so i think that's why they switched but you know it was like an attacking one gap scheme similar to you know some of the like bennett baylor defenses and now you know they've gone to the three three five and i love holgerson after a game i can't remember what post game presser it was but he's like you know well, we i mean we're mainly just playing cover three out there i love that he just like says that as yeah. well like yeah that we're just playing cover three but they do they were do, they were quarters cover one with some cover three mixed in it's a lot of cover three now and just kind of different ways to disguise it originally they were like super aggressive with a bunch of presser packages and it kind of hasn't been that their cornerbacks haven't been very good ah. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's like a bend. Don't this is like a true. They're leaning on the bend. Don't break. It, it's like a Iowa State's with a little bit of those older West Virginia. Was it Tony Tony Gibbs? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Alignments nice. at West oh. Virginia. That Gibson. Yeah. Sorry, that's what it oh. reminded me of a little bit. Like disguising the same coverage over and over again. So that's kind of what they're and they'll still do the true four down from what I've seen in some of these games and then. Against KSU is a lot of the tight front in that three down. So I don't know if we'll see that as much in this game, but you know, their nose tackle, crazy name. I have the pronunciation guide up here. I can go try to grab it really quick. It is <laughs> it is Chidozi Wanqua. He's banged up. Dana didn't give a status update on him because he normally does. That makes me think he's trying to hide it and he may not be able to play. He's one of their better guys on defense. Nelson Caesar's been banged up, their defensive end. A.J. Halsey, who plays middle safety in their new 3-3-5, he's been banged up. They just – David Ogwebu, I don't know if you remember him from OU. Yeah, OU, yeah. He, so he's 6'4", 250. 
in the 335, they didn't want to take him off the field. So they put him at Mike linebacker. If you get him moving, he is just not fast. He's a really good player. He was a good defensive end. He's got a lot of tackles. He just looks really slow at linebacker. I was already thinking this was like the Josiah Johnson in the flat game. <laughs> I feel like just with that matchup right there, it it may definitely be that. Yeah, and then Malik Fleming, one of their corners who actually has played pretty good. He didn't play last week. Dana said he's probably going to be back, but who knows? You know, they, they've got guy like Traylon Payne, Jamal Morris, Jamarcus Cheeks, Malik Robinson, Jamari Caldwell, Anthony Holmes Jr., Talik Robbins. These are all guys that have made plays for them. They're just, I just don't, I think Oklahoma State's going to be able to move the football, even with a banged up offensive line. And we haven't talked a ton about Dana Holgerson, but I I feel like when Mike Gundy and Dana Holgerson get together, it it's advantage Mike Gundy. It's not a shot at Dana. I just think that that's what history has told you. And um, I think Mike Gundy's going to have his guys ready to go. I mean, this is, you know, if you would have told me that you're seven and three with a shot at the big 12 title going into this game, I would have already thought it was going to go well. But, and, and again, I, I don't want to be super negative on Houston. They're, they're good enough to come into this game and beat you. I fully believe that. But I, I just feel like the situation with Oklahoma State, if they can get a little bit healthier, maybe get a Jaden Bray back. Like if you could get somebody back, get a spark offensively, get up to an early lead, and then coast, that's kind of the path to victory for me. Yeah, I like it, kid. I think you let us right in. You want to go ahead and pick it? Yeah, I think we probably should, unless you want to fill another hour. I know we're ahead of schedule, but we could always do that if you wanted to. <laughs> No, I, I think I think I'm ready. Okay. I've got it minus seven over underline at 59 and a half. And Kate, if you don't mind me going first, nope. I'm gonna take OSU 34, Houston 24, right under that wow. over underline. And I would, I truly would, I hate caveating my picks every week, but I truly would pick it more if I knew Oklahoma State's O line wasn't so banged up because I I just don't. I think coming off of that game, Mike Gundy's going to get these guys right. I know the K-State game last year led to that kind of downward spiral, but I don't think this is the same team mentality-wise. I would agree. I think Oklahoma State's going to come back. Dana seems, I mean, he's always frustrated, but he seems really frustrated with his team right now after that Cincinnati loss. I know they're going to try to get right. I just don't think they're going to be able to do it. And I think Oklahoma state's just going to kind of, I can even see it to a point where Houston gets a late touchdown and it's 34 17 or something like that yeah. going into the end of the game. That, well, that would be a, a perfect scenario. I, so Dustin, you and I are exactly three points off. I have Houston also scoring 24, but I have Oklahoma state at 31. So I'm under the over under that is a push on the, on the line. And to me, I, I could definitely see it going more the way you just said it, where Oklahoma State's defense plays well. You know, Oklahoma State's offense does enough, controls the game on the ground. That would be, you know, the path to a comfortable victory is if Oklahoma State's able to move the ball on the ground as most teams have on Houston, they're going to try to do it. But if they're not, I still think Oklahoma State has enough compared to what Houston has on the perimeter to make some plays down the field, moving the football through the air. They've got to, they've got to protect the football. You can't have another four turnover game. You may not be able to have a two turnover game and feel really good about this thing going into the fourth quarter. So I actually think it's a little sneakier. I don't think Houston's that good, but I think Oklahoma state, like 
if they think of it the way you and I are talking about it as a get right game, they should win this Houston though, you know, which direction or what direction are they thinking in the locker room? Are they thinking our season's over? Are they thinking we've got a chance to knock off what's going to be a ranked Oklahoma state team on our home field for that reason. I think it's going to be a little bit tighter, um, but hopefully feels, you know, comfortable headed into that fourth quarter. That would be perfect for me. Yeah, no, I like you, Cade. Before we get to our last ad read, we're going to break this down way more. I just didn't want to completely leave it off. Also, his coach was on Robert Allen's show, and he said, Myawaki. Myawaki, great. So I think we were, I think I might have been adding an extra syllable in there. If the LI is silent, that makes total sense. Yeah, so he said, Myawaki. He seemed like an awesome guy. You know, Cade and I have been hinting at this. Apparently, he's been pledged to Oklahoma State for a long time. He also apparently actually committed earlier last week, but wanted to wait to release it. So he's just a guy that wanted to wait till his season went by. Number 38 QB in the nation, according to 247. We will get into him way more, Cade. I'll throw it to you just in case you have any comments on him. But I don't want to break it down too much yet because I know we'll deep dive it in the offseason. I was I was watching him last night. I'm, I'm not saying he is this guy, but I think he's got a little C.J. Stroud light action going on. Emphasis on the light because C.J. Stroud's going to be an incredible pro. But I think he's got a little bit of that. He's got the length. I think he's mobile enough. He's got a, a live arm. The ball really like pops out of his hand. I'm really excited. He wants about to him. throw it. I know. He doesn't want to run, which I like. Yeah, Let's but see. mobile he enough. He can run. Yeah, so there's the run. CJ Stroud comparison. Could, wants to throw it. I like it. All right, let's hear from our last ad read and get it, our sponsor and get out of here. You guys know if you listen, it's Wild Oak Lighting. Wild Oak Lighting is your authorized jellyfish lighting dealer for the greater Oklahoma City area, Stillwater, and several other Oklahoma markets. Jellyfish Lighting is a permanent but discreet color-changing LED lighting system for the exterior of your home. With 16 million different colors and patterns, Jellyfish Lighting can be used for Christmas, holiday, and accent lighting, and of course, Oklahoma State Game Day Lighting. You can learn more about Jellyfish Lighting by checking out the website wildoak-lighting.com or you can follow them on Facebook or on Instagram at wildoak underscore lighting. Cade, got mine on for Christmas right now, setting it up early, saw some other houses in the neighborhood with their Christmas lights up, so I had to put mine on. And you know what? I can change mine to any different pattern I want that's still Christmas-themed and just kind of show off a little bit for these people that just have the, the stagnant lights in their neighborhood. So please... Reach out to these guys if you're looking for Christmas lights. It's a much better idea than having to go up on your roof every year, risk falling off. Not me, because I'm very agile and athletic, but a normal human being. Check them out. The guys are awesome. They'll hook you up. Tell them you heard about them from the podcast. And Cade, as always, when I do this ad read, both of my dogs start going nuts. Not barking, <laughs> just being crazy. I really appreciate them for that. They've been laying here for the entire two-hour pod, and now they're up and ready. They're fired up for Wild Oak Lighting. Who wouldn't get That's fired true. up for that? I mean, come on. That's they, a good they, point. they heard about a great product and they got excited. I would have, I did the same thing, quite frankly. I just turned my camera off. You didn't get to see that. So no, <laughs> the guys at Wild Oak do a great job. They really do. They could run a fear campaign based on what you just said. The idea of falling off your roof. Don't do that. Get Wild Oak lighting, jellyfish lighting, and our friends over at Wild Oak. Dustin, it's great talking to you. Have a safe uh, travels this weekend, and we'll talk to you back next week. If you're not already, 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at feels like 45 pod. You can follow Dustin at Dust Ragu, and you can follow me at Cade Webb. We will see you guys back here next week. Go Pokes.